Welcome to episode four of the AUENV233 Dirt on Soils podcast. Today we'll be discussing soil organic matter, but first, some new podcast theme music. Major learning outcomes for this topic include understanding soil carbon in the context of the global carbon budget, looking at the processes of carbon breakdown and integration into soil, describing the different soil carbon pools that exist, looking at the influence of soil organic matter on plant health, and finally looking at the influence of a warming climate, focusing specifically on Arctic environments which are characterized by permafrost soils. Let's start by exploring carbon. Carbon is the foundation of all life. Carbon is the basis of molecules ranging from cellulose to chlorophyll and makes up most living tissues. Carbon atoms for living tissues are arranged into chains or rings and associated with many other elements. Carbon usually makes up about one half of soil organic matter. And soil organic matter, although it's a small percentage overall of the soil, it has a large influence on processes such as cation exchange capacity, water capacity, and impacting global carbon balances. Slide four shows a diagram representing the global carbon cycle, specifically emphasizing pools of carbon which interact with the atmosphere. The numbers in the boxes indicate pentagrams, or 10 to the 15 grams of carbon stored in the major pools. As we can see, soil contains more carbon than vegetation and atmosphere combined, almost double. Here we focus on organic carbons, but know that there can be substantial amounts of inorganic carbon, such as carbonate rocks, as well. Overall, at any one given time, we estimate that the soil contains approximately 3,000 petagrams of carbon. About one-third of this exists at depths below one meter. Of course, carbon is not equally distributed amongst all types of soils. The map on slide 5 shows that there are some areas in Canada that have much higher soil organic carbon masses than others. Plant residues are the principal material undergoing decomposition in soils. Because of this, they are the primary source of soil organic matter. Green plant tissues contain about 60-90% water by weight. If plant tissues are dried to remove all water, analysis of the dry matter remaining shows that on a mass basis, the dry matter consists mostly, at least 90-95%, of carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. Now we're going to look at how decomposition in organic soils takes place. Decomposition in organic soils follows four major steps. The first, oxidation, the second, release, the third, synthesis, and the fourth, protection. Generally, mechanical shredding must take place first before these processes can be efficient so that microbes, which are primarily driving these reactions, have small pieces to operate upon. The major decomposition step of oxidation refers to the addition of oxygen to carbon and hydrogen plant materials. This results in the production of carbon dioxide, water, and energy, as well as increasing decomposer biomass. Slide 8 shows a great figure to explore this process. On the x-axis, we're looking at the passage of time from when fresh residues were added to when carbon from the residues has either decomposed or stabilized and is not breaking down anymore. The top graphic shows soil organism populations, or equivalently, the amount of CO2 that's being released and the bottom graphic reveals the amount of organic substance in the soil. Arrows in the bottom graph refer to transfer of carbon among different components 
the first thing we notice is that once fresh residues have been added, there's actually no change for some amount of time. This represents the period of time when shredding of that material needs to take place before microbes can start acting. In the top graph, we can notice differences between microorganisms that are classified as K-strategists or R-strategists. K-strategists are microorganisms with an affinity for resistant substances. They have a low population, but constant. Whereas R-strategists are considered opportunist or colonizing organisms and increase their population rapidly once we have new materials introduced to the ecosystem. Soon, we can see the total microbial activity is at its peak and the resulting microbial biomass is increasing significantly. This microbial activity is producing tremendous amounts of carbon dioxide, which is featured as the white part of the lower graph. At this point, microbes might account for up to one-sixth of organic matter in the soil. Notably, during this high amount of microbial activity, we actually see a slight decrease in the soil humus. This is known as the priming effect. It's because the microbes are so active, they're both incorporating and breaking down compounds in the original tissue, but also stimulating the breakdown of some of the more protected soil organic matter. Here it's important to note K-strategists peak after R-strategists decline. This is because R-strategists are feeding on easy to digest carbon molecules, whereas K-strategists are breaking down harder to degrade components such as cellulose and lignin. Here we notice that the humus level is actually increasing as this total microbial activity is decreasing, as now this carbon is released into the soil. So at the far right side of the lower graph, we can see that overall the soil humic content has increased, microbial biomass has remained the same, and compounds in the original tissue are almost completely broken down, although some are protected and not able to be broken down by organisms. Now that we have a better grasp on the overall process, let's look at some of the impacts on the rates of decomposition and mineralization in the soil profile. The first are the environmental conditions present in the soil. Maximum microbial activity requires sufficient soil moisture. Optimal is at or slightly above field capacity in a soil. This is about 60% water content. Additionally, microbes respond well with warm temperatures. We can see that microbe activity levels increase up to about 35 degrees and start decreasing afterwards. We see the highest decrease in microbial rates at temperatures above 38 degrees. Finally, for pH, the optimum is near 7. However, microbial activity is able to continue down to acidic pHs of around 5. The second major impact on the rates of decomposition are the quality of the added residues. We need to consider if the residues are added at the surface or if they're incorporated into the soil profile. There's more consistent moisture and temperature and less risk of runoff if the residues are incorporated, although there is an increased risk of leaching to lower soil levels. Recall that most of the microbial activity that's taking place here happens within 30 centimeters of the surface of the soil. A second consideration is the size of the residues added. Of course, we also mean shredding the materials down into usable components, but also the size of the molecules that are incorporated. Molecules such as glucose and sucrose are much smaller than those like cellulose, tannins, or lignans, and this results in them being very difficult to break down versus smaller components. Beyond size of those compounds, we also need to consider what they're made of. Smaller compounds are generally more carbon and less hydrogen, oxygen, and very little nitrogen, phosphorus, or sulfur. Whereas larger molecules, again looking at the tannins and lignans, contain many more of these compounds. This means that we can see that sugars, starches, and simple proteins are much easier to break down than cellulose, which is again much easier to break down than lignans and phenolic compounds. As we spoke about earlier, 
R-selected microbes are more likely to break down these easy plant residues, there are K-selected microbes in the soil that are capable of breaking down more complex tissues. Major consideration of makeup of these components is the carbon to nitrogen ratio of the residues. So why is carbon to nitrogen ratio important? One is that there's very limited soil nitrogen versus carbon, and so there's competition for what is available. The second is that the availability of nitrogen can actually determine the rate of decay and nitrogen availability, a positive feedback cycle. For example, soil microbes are eight parts carbon for every one part nitrogen. A third is incorporated, so they basically need to find one gram of nitrogen for every 24 grams of carbon. Different types of plant materials present different ratios of carbon and nitrogen, although generally as plants mature, carbon-nitrogen ratios increase. We can see this in the graphic on slide 13, where substances with higher carbon-nitrogen ratios decay slower than those with lower carbon-nitrogen ratios. Now that we've stepped through the rates of decomposition and mineralization, let's look at the genesis of soil organic matter itself. What is soil organic matter? Is it the same as soil organic carbon? In general, soil organic matter represents about two times soil organic carbon. This would mean that soil organic matter is about half carbon by weight. There are two important categories of soil organic matter. One is labile carbon. This is easy to change and changes on short timescales, months to years. The other is humus, which is stabilized carbon. This remains in the soil for long periods, decades to centuries, and is relatively resistant. If we were to take a business analogy to this, we would consider labile carbon to be cash flow and humus to be capital. The graphic on slide 14 reveals the different pools of soil organic carbon and the links between them. Important links include the dissolved organic carbon, orange box in the middle, and looking at sorption and desorption between humus and labile carbon. We can also see plant litter with presence of fire becomes char, which is a more protected or stabilized organic matter. We also see the presence of enzymes, which are really impacting labile carbon and not necessarily having a huge impact on that stabilized organic carbon or humus. It's important to understand that char is not created from high intensity fires, but rather from smoldering and charring under low oxygen conditions. These are very common in traditional grasslands. It's not complete combustion, but it breaks down organic materials into their charred forms, and you can see pictures of it on slide 15. Some environments can have 40 to 50% of soil organic carbon in this char form. And it's really important in those environments because it has a high exchange capacity, a really high porosity, and a large surface area. It's also extremely stable in the soil carbon component. When we think about soil organic matter, what we really want to understand is the amount that is present in our different soils and also the quality of that organic matter. Often the presence of active versus passive organic matter is determined more by environmental conditions than anything else. As we saw earlier, rates of decomposition increase with warming, and so warming passive organic matter soils can lead to soil turnover rates similar to active organic matter. There are methods that exist to differentiate between these pools, and our understanding of what is a resistant pool and an easily decomposed pool of soil carbon has contributed to a lot more accurate models of soil change under a warming climate. Slide 18 reveals the impacts of management and cultivation on these different pools of organic matter. Here we can see plant residues in green, active organic matter in light brown, and our stabilized and protected organic matter, or humus, in dark brown. 
We can see at the start of cultivation, there's a decrease in all three pools, although stabilized and protected humus decreases less. And we can see that overall our total soil organic matter drops quite precipitously. On the x-axis, we're looking at the time after the start of cultivation. So 50 to 60 years in, we can see that active organic matter has decreased from just over 80% to down to around 50%. Additionally, if we look 100 years after the start of cultivation, when organic matter management was improved, or maybe we put the land back into native vegetation, we can see that these pools of carbon increase significantly, but it's not the passive organic carbon, it's actually the active organic matter which first increases. And again, we actually see an increase in plant residues as well because we're not removing those or tilling those into the soil. When we think about soil organic matter, we need to think of it kind of like a bank account. It's a balance between gains and losses. Carbon in is coming from plant litters and residues, animal waste, imported bioproducts, um, root deposition, root residues that are breaking down, and that's inserting carbon into our organic matter bank account. Carbon out happens through oxidation, loss of CO2, removal, erosion, leaching of organic carbon. Really what we're interested in here is the residence time of this carbon. So how long does carbon remain in our bank account? Two things can impact that, sequestration and sources and sinks. And so how those sources and sinks behave dictate the stability of our soil organic matter. And slide 20 really reveals a number of different management practices that can have um, an impact on the inputs and losses and practices that can both maximize and minimize the amount of carbon that's stored in our soils. So a lot of focus is obviously paid to managed ecosystems, but what about natural ecosystems? Well, there are a couple of examples provided on slide 21. Here we can see that when we're talking about forests, there's a greater amount of standing biomass, and this is carbon that's stored in woody tissues such as the trees. Organic matter oxidation is actually much slower in this forest environment. We generally have greater leaching but less erosion because of that standing biomass. In grasslands we see a large role of plant root biomass where between 60 to 80 percent of the biomass is actually below ground. With the large amount of root biomass it decays slowly and so soil organic carbon is distributed more uniformly than in forests. Additionally, grasslands are generally impacted by frequent fire, and so the presence of char in these soils is really important. Finally, we can look at wetlands. Wetlands have very high productivity, but generally experience a lack of oxygen, and so they have limited microbial decomposition. If we look at the map of soil organic carbon mass in, across Canada on slide 22, we can see the presence of all three of these natural ecosystems High areas of soil organic carbon mass are in northern soils um, where we see wetlands. We can also compare this map back to earlier maps from this course when we see impact from different soil orders, temperatures, moistures, and soil textures. Remember that when it comes to moisture, the carbon nitrogen ratio is higher in higher rainfall and more leached areas. And so generally, we would expect to see that moisture effect on soil organic carbon as well. The influence of temperature on soil organic carbon can be seen in the top figure on slide 23. The balance between plant production and biological oxidation of organic matter determines the effect that temperature has upon this organic matter accumulation. Shaded areas indicate organic matter accumulation under aerobic on the left and anaerobic on the right conditions. Soil organic matter will accumulate to higher levels in cool climates, 
especially in waterlogged anaerobic soils, such as we see in wetlands in northern Canada. The second figure on slide 23 shows the influence of mineral textures on the amount of organic carbon. And what we can see is that as we increase our percentage of silt and clay, we have a direct increase in the amount of organic carbon content. This is due to the presence of more surface area and the ability of clay minerals to stabilize more organic carbon in the soil. Given this discussion about different pools of carbon located in the soil, we really want to understand what would the impact be of a warming climate on soils and what is the fate of that soil carbon. We'll look into those issues next episode. So that concludes episode four of the AUENV233 Dirt on Soils podcast. See you next time.